situation we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-host this week, as usual, is Neil Niall Bradley. Hi, everyone. We're also joined by the Truth Perspective uh, hosts, or co-hosts, Harrison Keeley and Shane Lachance. Hi, Hello, everybody. Hi. And we are also delighted to have in our company... Bahar Azizi. Hi, everyone. She's a SOT editor uh, on English SOT and on Dutch SOT, and she's also a fairly regular contributor to our show. So that's our lineup for this week. It proved, it, it's certainly going to be a, with that kind of a, a lineup. We're going to have a scintillating conversation, no doubt. I believe so. And the topic of our conversation this week is. Personality shaping. Why it's okay to break down once in a while. That's a bit of a pun to a certain extent, but we are mainly, well, in part, we're going to be talking about uh, uh, the work of um, Dabrowski, Kazimierz Dabrowski. He's a Polish psychologist, or was a Polish psychologist. He's deceased, yeah. He died in eight. 80, 1980. He died in 1980, uh, and he wrote, uh, well, he basically had published books and wrote papers and all sorts of things on uh, essentially a psychological theory. Um, well, that, that speaks to or, or tries to define and uh, explain the process of the development of what he calls personality, the human personality how it happens and uh, how it evolves and uh, the, the, the directions it can take, the positive and negative directions it can take in developing personality. Um, Harrison was the... Uh, Reptile Press, actually, our, our publishing company, published uh, for the first time in a while, or re, republished or, or made some of his works, or is in the process of making some of his works available. The first book he published was um, Personality Shaping Through Positive Disintegration, published by Ripple Press last year. And Harrison, who's on the line, obviously, um, was, uh, I think, you kind of were the editor to a certain extent of that book, Harrison, right? Yes, that's correct. Except I didn't uh, have to do too much. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it's it just ready really make, for print, basically. Yeah, getting it ready for print and making it available. So it's a very interesting book, and we recommend people um, buy it. It is a little bit... Um, if anybody's read Political Polynology... Um, you recognize the, the flavor. <laughs> and of course, that was another Polish uh, psych- psychologist. Um, so there's something about Polish psychologists and the way they write, or maybe it's the way it's translated. But uh, I think it's also the original the original text. Um, well, you know, at the time that this was being written and talked about, I suppose, in the 60s and 70s and stuff, um, or 50s, 60s and 70s, um, there was a certain way that people uh, in that field wrote and, and spoke uh, somewhat... Uh, Arcane, uh, academic, or ac- academic arcane language, um, but it's still very understandable, and there's some very interesting things in it. And uh, the, 
the, the overall theory behind it is very much in keeping with those who are aware of, um, for example, Gurdjieff um, and his theories and his ideas and the kind of things that we talk about in our forum in part. It's very much in keeping with that, although it's from a particular perspective, from Dabrowski's perspective. But if you read the book you, or read even just parts of the book, you can see uh, parallels there between um, what he's saying and effectively esoteric work or work on the self and working to... Gurdjieff's fourth way. Yeah, grow your grow yourself, grow your being, I suppose, in the Gurdjieffian language. Um, but this, So we wanted to kind of like... We wanted to express or, or to... Mm, deconstruct or explicate the the theories in this in this book. Uh, some of them are quite interesting, and talk about it a little bit, and also try to apply it to individuals, people who are listening to the show, how it applies to you, how it's relevant to you, but also how it works, uh, how it might apply to to the world in general, and how maybe use some examples from well-known personages, personages in this world uh, as examples of these theories. So, maybe, Harrison, you could give us, in 20 words or less, <laughs> okay, you can go to 21 if you want, but 20 words or less, uh, uh, um, an explanation or a concise description of what positive, let's say, per positive disintegration is, or personality shaping through positive disintegration is. Okay, well, I'll do you one better and say it in even fewer words. Cool. Um, <laughs> I'd try to sum it up as shortly as possible simply by saying that uh, in order to become more human, we have to suffer. Mm. Now, okay, that's stop, that's 20. Very... <laughs> I'm kidding. Go on. Now, okay, so I'm... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've fulfilled the requirements. Now I can just go on for as, as long as I want. Yeah. But, but um, uh, really, when, when talking about Dabrowski's theory, it's actually it's it's really hard to to sum it up in any kind of concise manner because there are so many aspects to it, and they all relate to each other. And if you talk about one thing, you're missing out so many others that might you know give some more context to what you're saying. So um, you know, I'll, I'll do my best to give some of the basic ideas, but I really just recommend all our listeners to check out the book and um, there are some, there are articles online. If you just search Dabrowski's name or positive disintegration, you can find more resources um, because there is so much to it and it's so expansive. And one of the reasons that, it, that it's so expansive is because that really was Dabrowski's goal in developing his theory. It started, he was inspired at a very young age when he was about 10 years old, I believe he was walking around with his father um, and this was during World War uh, World War One, and and he just saw it was a battlefield, and he just saw all these dead bodies, and he was looking at the, the the expressions on these men's faces, and so he saw some who were afraid, some who were determined, some who were peaceful, and it was just it was a huge shock for him at such a young age to see all this death, and it inspired the question in him to, and the the. The really the, the deep motivation to to understand human nature and what it what it means to be human and the meaning of existence. So really, and that was that kind of was the the inspirational kind of germ that grew throughout his life. And he he actually wanted to be a musician. Uh, he wanted to play piano, but the the course of his life led him to choose psychology and psychiatry as a profession. And so that's the direction he went. And uh, throughout the whole course of his life, he developed this theory. 
which really had the, the most uh, kind of the widest scope possible. He didn't want to just understand one little aspect of human nature, but he wanted to understand human nature in all of its variation. So the, 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 the end result of that was that uh, was a theory that kind of encompassed what what he might call or what we might call the lowest of the low of humanity to the highest um, the most the like the what what many see as the ideal form of humanity um, of of just being human of human nature and of conscience and so the theory he ended up developing was this one of positive disintegration and by the time uh, by the end of his life he uh, he developed developed it in such a way that he 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 saw human nature as being multi leveled so there were there were not only multiple layers uh, levels of of being within a person but between people um, as a whole as well so you might have people at the at a low level of development and he identified several features of that he called it primitive inter- integration and um, and then that proceeds through a, a unilevel disintegration now a disintegration is simply uh, it can range from the the most basic inner conflict um, to to the most kind of um, painful existential suffering or psychosis even or suicide um, there's a whole range of of types of inner conflicts that people have and these are the the kind of conflicts that that psychiatry and psychology is called um, a lot of uh, like mental illnesses so in his time he called them neuroses or psychoneuroses and these can be depression or bipolar episodes or um, even types of schizophrenia uh, or hysteria and these are all kind of uh, symptoms of what's going on in the person's psyche, the, the conflicts and, and the things that are conflicting within them to, to lead them to these, uh, in, in these periods of mental suffering, uh, often accompanied by, um, by physical suffering as well. Um, he'd, he'd classify more of the physical suffering at the, associated with the lower level of neuroses, but uh, that's, that's kind of a technical detail. But the, the point about the, the, the suffering and the disintegration is that inside uh, we will humans who have this capacity for disintegration will kind of fall apart on the inside there will be a conflict a struggle and then the that can result in either a positive or a negative result a negative result will be um, either a person will will have this kind of this inner crisis and then just quickly get over it and it won't have it's like they won't have learned their lesson they won't have have learned anything from it and they just go back to where they were and they don't really change it's just been a temporary blip uh, a temporary disturbance and then they go back to normal and uh, nothing substantially has changed in their lives and then uh, or they might spiral even deeper into a full-blown psychosis or even a suicide and so that would he'd call those examples negative disintegrations because they haven't they haven't come out of the struggle with anything new or anything higher. Um, and then on the third level of that he identified, that was a multi-level disintegration, where within you have um, more uh, more of an identifiable hierarchy or structure of what is in conflict. So you'll see that um, that you when you have when you're having a struggle or a moral struggle, there's a conflict between. The way things you've, the way you've been doing things in your life, the way you've been behaving or thinking or beliefs that you've had, uh, or the way you emotionally react to things, and then there's a conflict where you, where for some reason that it doesn't, that's not enough anymore. There's something, there's just something wrong with the way you've been doing it, and you see that in yourself, and you, and you become um, disappointed in yourself or 
dissatisfied with yourself. Like there's something that you should be doing better or differently or more. And, um, and then that can reintegrate at a higher level where you will lose those old habits and develop um, new ways of interacting, um, ways in which you, you're not maybe acting in such a way that you are harming the people around you. And that, that, that of course, could be in ways that you weren't even aware of at the time. But once you become aware of it, that inspires the, the desire for change. You have a disintegration of your, the, the mental structure and the way that you've been paving your life. And then re- hopefully reintegrate at a new level where you behave in, in different ways and uh, what, in what Dabrowski might call higher ways. And then at the highest level, level five, um, Dabrowski would said that that would be the personality that Joe was talking about where, where um, you are kind of completely co- um, controlled or totally in control of who you are and how you behave and your behaviors are totally in line with, with your ideals. And of course, that is a very difficult thing to do. And Dabrowski, um, Dabrowski himself would say that he hadn't achieved that level. Um, it was just for him kind of a theoretical ideal that he could that he could see traces of in his study of other individuals, kind of famous people that he, that he looked at. And uh, so that's that's if I was just put that part in a nutshell, that's the way I do it. Okay, that's uh, that's a good uh, summation. Yeah. So what I'm, I mean, this isn't just all all of what you said, but basically, Dorowski looked at, um, he was obviously looking at people, looking at himself and looking at other people and trying to mm-hmm. make sense of the differences in human personalities and the differences in human behavior and, and character and why, how some people uh, behave in more, let's say, ideal ways um, or more ways that are more beneficial to the community and others who behave in, in, in maybe more destructive ways, etc. And also the effects that these... Um, that life in general and life experiences and suffering, et cetera, have on people and, and that it's effectively he was, he seems to me to have been defining that there's a, that there's a, that there's a process that life experiences, the experiences people have in their lives is a process and that at least potentially anyway, it can take them to, uh, what well, it can take them somewhere or it can, it can help or it's a process of, human evolution effectively of becoming a better human being, I suppose, for want of a better term. Yeah. And one of the, one of the key aspects of that is that if you, if you think about it in terms of the, the evolution of humanity, if we think about evolution in terms of the, just the animal life that we see on the, on a planet and of which we are a result, that evolution is, is automatic in the sense that the beings being evolved and evolving have no direct control over it. But Dabrowski would say at the human level, that's when our evolution kind of gets put in our own hands. And it's, it's really the efforts that we make towards ourselves that further our own evolution. So it's not like, it's not like some automatic process um, that just, it just happens. It's something that we are intimately involved in. And it has to do with, with the way in which we analyze and react and feel um, to, um, in in response to the world and the the inner experiences that we all feel as human beings, and there's a variety of responses that humans can that give in those situations. Um, so you know, from the basic level of, of a psychopath who has no kind of reaction or even awareness of a lot of of human nature, like a psychopath can't can't experience anything, can't ex- can't can't get into someone else's suffering. It's just that that isn't there. It's not a part of them, and so they can't 
they can't grow, they can't learn anything from that experience because they don't experience it. Um, so there's a very, like, even within humanity, there is, uh, there are differences in the way, the, in, in basically in our in our basic structures, in the way we react to, to, to things and in our capacities for for taking in reality and for, for seeing aspects of reality and aspects of ourselves. And so there's this kind of um, gradient along humanity from the people who, who so much of reality is blocked from their inner perception to the ones that, that see a lot of uh, the, the more subtle aspects of, of human nature. And that, and that has to do with the emotional component of life and human experience. And because that's the central part of, of Dabrowski's theory is, is the, the, the supreme importance of emotion and feeling, uh, because that is how we, how we see, how we understand so much of reality and human nature. It's on an emotional level. And so this really is a, a theory of emotional development. Mm-hmm. In the introduction to, to the book, which is written by a guy who was then president of the American Psychological Association, now, correct, Maurer. Yeah. Um, it's a great introduction because he he writes, you know, a lot more plainly, and he nicely summarizes some of, at least some of Dabrowski's ideas. And mm-hmm. what struck me was, in his own terms, this is then head of the APA in the U.S. saying that Dabrowski's model, if you like, completely turns. It's antithetical to the dominant model of the time and probably still today, namely the Freudian view of psychological issues. When people have such, in the Freudian view, oh, something's gone wrong. Let us, let us deal with it. Let us treat it. It's, it's a dis-ease. The person is not at ease. It's an illness. It must be fixed. Dabrowski takes a very, very different view of, let's say, everyday run-of-the-mill psychological issues, and put aside the, the extreme case for a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, a... Yeah, that was sort of a question for Harrison, just to develop on that. Okay. Um, yeah. Do you see where I'm going yeah, with that? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, one, one of the ways in which Dabrowski would put it is that, um, that psychiatry then, and now even, often most more often than not sees any kind of mental disturbance or illness or or just any kind of inner crisis as a disease as something to to just fix and so it's it's like having symptoms and you treat the symptoms mm-hmm. now so Dabrowski thought that was to- a totally wrong-headed way of looking at it 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 ignores really the the experience and the um, the causes and the reasons why a person is experiencing these things because they if you look at them as symptoms, well, they're symptoms that there is some really important process going on in this person's life that that has the the, the vast potential for for growth, and that right. the 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 disease that this person is going through is not something that just should just be eradicated either through pills or through some kind of um, like Freudian analysis that that um, that's that's all about kind of just reachieving equilibrium. This is something that has to be worked through. So to really get into it and and see see the deeper meaning of it. So um, there, we, we did a couple shows on Dabrowski several months ago, and uh, we played some clips. Um, if you if if listeners just search on YouTube, there's some videos 
that were made in the 70s, I believe. Um, they include some interviews with Dabrowski, and there are some clips of him actually working with um, with some of his patients. And there's this one woman who was just in a deep depression. And so he went, it's just a few little interactions between them. But you can, first of all, you can see um, Dabrowski's compassion for the people that he interacted with, but also just the way he approached it. It's not very conventional, but he didn't approach this woman as if she was sick and um, that just we just have to find a way to make her not depressed. He kind of, he, first of all, he just established a rapport with her. Like, um, he, 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 he tried to start conversations, and then he, he tried to get her, and I think he achieved it, to, to first of all, acknowledge that her, acknowledge her suffering, acknowledge what she was going through, and then to ease her out of it in the sense of getting her to, to shift her focus um, onto other people. This woman was in a deep depression for, for years. She was almost, when you look at her, she was almost catatonic. So this was a case where today people would undoubtedly say that she was mentally ill. And so the first step for him was to, to get her to just have this slight redirect in her mind to, to start thinking about others and to start thinking about the things that interest her and, um, and then essentially to, to guide her along the, the path of seeing that in her depression there was something very significant that because there's all a, a reason why a person is, is depressed or there can be um, and and to actually find, figure that out and see what depression is will will um, or can lead to this reappraisal of a person's own values and what they're doing in their life and what 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 that depression says about what's important for them and then to take steps to move in that direction as opposed to staying in the depression. But um, so, so Dabrowski would say, just to, to go back to the question, that, that the, the suffering is actually an essential part of human development. It's not something that's, that's necessarily going wrong. It's a process through which people have to proceed in order to get anywhere. Yes, and, indeed. Um, he would, indeed, so, he would suggest it was a positive development. It's part of a development of a person. And what strikes me about it is that in some form or another, it's a person coming into conflict with a, a previously held belief that they realize is illusory. And here I'm using terms more familiar to the fourth way, Gurdjieff, and it's, it's, it's easy for us to bleed in, in and out of both because Dabrowski's um, psychology, if we can abbreviate it to that, is almost a map. It's um, it matches so closely with from its foundation all the way through to this idea of there being multi levels of beings of people. Um, at the most foundational level, Dabrowski is saying you're not born uh, with a soul. In effect, you're not born with a preformed personality. It grows exactly, yeah. and it can grow in dramatically different ways at any stage in a person's life. Yeah, it, really quick, you guys. Um, are we coming through all right? Um, uh, is our connection okay? Yeah, it's a bit choppy, but it's not bad. So we should, you should okay. stick with what we've got, yeah. Um, okay. Thanks. On the, um, the the thing about the uh, about the idea of what Dabrowski describes as. Um, these kind of soft, this kind of suffering that people experience, <clears throat> or the illnesses, or the mental illnesses, or what are described as mental illnesses that people experience, and him saying that these are, are effectively positive reactions, um, at least in potential, 
and that that being such a uh, so out of sync with uh, the dominant psychological um, belief or approach at the time and still and still today obviously because people today are still uh, if you go to the doctor with depression or any other kind of uh, psychological issue you'll get some pills so that belief still holds it's kind of interesting because the fact that that is the dominant uh, the dominant discourse, the dominant uh, belief in, in, in medicine in the world today suggests that uh, you know, a majority or majority of people on the planet or the people in power on the planet are people who don't see or the, the dominant belief is that, um, that you should just be happy all the time, that nothing about life and society should ever really upset you or disturb you to any significant degree. Um, but obviously that does happen to a lot of people and I think it's been glossed over and covered up and but they still try to solve people's problem. Oh, you don't like, you know, you're having a, you're depressed about life. Well, that's obviously wrong because why should you be depressed about life? There's nothing to be depressed about. Which for mm-hmm. us obviously is... Well, a, go ahead. Um, there's... Busky was a, um, a big fan of a philosopher called, named Unamuno and I've just got a couple of quotes here that I think speak directly to what you just said, Joe. Uh, so Udamon wrote, There is no true love save in suffering. And in this world, we have to choose either love, which is suffering, or happiness. And love leads, leads us to no other happiness than that of love itself and its tragic consolation of uncertain hope. He also wrote, The satisfied, the happy, do not love. They fall asleep in habit, near neighbor to annihilation. To fall into a habit is to begin to cease to be. Man is the more man, that is, the more divine, the greater his capacity for suffering, or rather, for anguish. Because, and so that, I think the, the reason Dabrowski really liked the pneumonia was for that kind of outlook, that the only sane reaction to, to the world and the reality, the, the, the objective view of what goes on in the world and human suffering is one of suffering is one to suffer with those who, who live this tragic existence that we see in, in life on this planet. And so it is the only sane response in order to, to be depressed and to suffer when we see that amount of suffering and to be happy, to be a, a truly just happy individual in the way that people think about it and that's, that it's um, like portrayed in, in just in society in general as a goal worth achieving. To be truly happy would mean to shut your eyes to all that suffering and that. Uh, to Dabrowski and to Unamuno and to you know several others, Gurdjieff. That's just a, a tragedy. That's that's uh, an absurdity to to block out that much of reality and be happy in the face of that much suffering. Well, this um, you know this idea of kind of you know, taking on suffering and you know really like digging into it, allowing yourself to feel it. It's, it's so it's so absent in um, in the United States and what's in Western culture. And you know, it's, it's interesting to me that you know a lot of the the Freudian ideas and uh, the the pill popping and, and, and so on has <clears throat> has is has emerged as the dominant um, uh, ideas or or way to uh, you know deal with these things. Uh, and you know, it, it makes you wonder you know, what is in um, the American psyche that allowed that to happen. Um, you know, what, what were the, the driving forces? within that and i think you know in part it is uh just 
you know, part of human nature to, you know, want to move towards what's comfortable and move away from what's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, for whatever reason in the United States in particular, you know, there's this, there's this uh, pursuit of happiness while there's not this understanding of the, of, you know, how to really achieve that. We think we just need to be happy to, to be happy, you know? And, um, when, you know, when we do have all these conflicts, you know, that's, that's not really the, uh, the approach, the, a healthy approach, um, where we, we immediately kind of deny, uh, any type of, um, bad feeling, you know, that, that we have about, uh, you know, particular, particular things. And, you know, and in that we, you know, de- we deny the, the, the aspects that can actually help us grow. Mm-hmm. Well, because Jeffine would say you, you tell yourself lies, you buffer, and you end up going back to sleep. Mm-hmm. Dabrowski might put it like, similarly, you say you're not being honest with yourself, and the result is you're actually uh, buffering or blocking or not allowing the disintegration to follow through. Get, uh, mm-hmm. Maybe we should talk about these terms, these three basic terms Dabrowski uses. I mean, there are many, but the basic model is primary integration, positive disintegration, and then a reintegration on another higher level. Can you, can you mm-hmm. just talk people through that for a second, Harrison? Well, uh, maybe one way to do that will be to introduce some other terms that he uses, <laughs> because when when speaking of disintegration, what Dabrowski is really talking about is a is a whole range of different inner experiences. Basically, he called them dynamisms, and so these can be uh, well. Most people would think about them in just in terms of certain emotions, but Dabrowski's was Dabrowski's list was longer than most, so he'd include. For example, guilt as one of these um, one of these emotions that is is part of disintegration. But he also had some other phrases like that he used, and I'll just read something from a paper by Marlene Rankel, who was one of Dabrowski's students in Edmonton, um, and she she wrote this paper just get, summing up um, some of the thoughts about Unamuno and and Doug Harmerschold and their their relationship or their relation to the theory. So she um, talks about these three aspects of it. The first is astonishment with oneself. So this is an intellectual experience in which one is shocked to suddenly see a behavior in the self which causes pain or suffering to others. The second is disquietude in the self. This is an emotional experience as the thought is allowed to penetrate the heart and act on the feelings. This is very difficult to pursue as one wants to run away from the painful self-awareness. And then third, discontent with the self. This is a lengthy period of time during which thought, under the direction of feeling, eradicates harmful behavior. So here we have, in a kind of in a really small nutshell, uh, a disintegration followed by a reintegration. The disintegration is first a kind of intellectual astonishment at oneself, so this is when you see a part of yourself that you hadn't seen before, and it's the the first moment of realization that the that your actions, the way you've been behaving in your life with the people around you, have caused them pain and suffering. And then this this can activate the emotions 
and and then you really feel it like that's when the remorse sets in and but like marlene writes in in this in this little piece it's very difficult to pursue as one wants to run away from the painful self-awareness so this gets into what shane was just talking about about the the desire to turn away from suffering and on on one level we turn away humans tend to turn away from suffering in the world we don't want to see the suffering of other people because that makes us uncomfortable but on the i think more importantly we um we ignore this we ignore having negative or so-called bad feelings about ourselves we don't want to think that we are bad people or that we've done bad things and so we lie to ourselves we buffer as you put it neil and we so we those parts of ourselves don't get brought to conscious awareness and if they aren't brought to conscious awareness we can't do anything about them and we will simply continue to be the way that we've always been and so then after by having these these kind of bad so-called negative experiences and feelings about ourselves and our behavior that is actually what prompts the reintegration which is the um, the new kind will things get rearranged in ourselves where now we act under another um, kind of prime imperative we we act under another value system and we actually it, it shows itself in the change in our behavior and the change in the way that we act with others so in just like I said in a nutshell that's a, a, a disintegration followed by a positive reintegration at a higher level because our actual actions have changed we've We've broken an old habit and developed one which encompasses. Um, well, well, it's just based on conscience. So we have um, our new way of behaving, our new way of being encompasses not only our um, very narrow range of self-interest, but the interest of others. And we learn new ways of behaving that take the feelings of others and others' well-being into account. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to interject there for a second. Uh, sorry, Shane. Uh, anybody wants to call in? There's a, on the page that you're listening to. There's a, an image that says "Speak with the host." Just click on that image, and uh, you can get through to us. Carry on. Um, a little earlier, Harrison, you mentioned this uh, this interview that's online uh, between uh, a, a patient that Dabrowski had, and you know, in that you can see you know, the 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 woman was clearly suffering um you know she was very very depressed as, as as you mentioned and what strikes me is that Dabrowski uh, may have kind of directed or redirected that suffering uh to that astonishment with oneself which in in seeing how um you know her her inwardly directed suffering is affecting affecting other people yeah, and he even kind of pointedly said to her, like, uh, I can't remember the exact words that he used, but in such a way, he he told her her suffering was totally selfish, because she was completely focusing on herself. And it, watching that, you think, oh, uh, well, I think the, that maybe the if you just take a person off the street and ask them to watch that, they'd be they might be horrified that that this psychologist would say such a thing to this suffering woman but it actually worked and she ended up like just in those few minutes of talking with him she actually opened up and was um was smiling and engaging with him and actually being a human being inter in interaction with another human being as opposed to just totally focusing on herself 
and her old, and her own suffering. So there's also this range of uh, of suffering. It's not like Dabrowski kind of idolized or idealized the, um, this kind of navel gazing or um, or totally self centered suffering. This that was, if anything, that suffering is a is a bad thing in the sense that it has to be transcended and it has to be gotten through. And if you stay at that level, there's nothing really positive or good about that kind of um, um, just inward focus and, and self-centeredness and focusing on one's suffering. The, the goal is to, to get past that and to, to actually be able to use that experience um, for the good of others. Well, it seems pretty similar to what Gurdjieff talked about in terms of uh, conscious suffering uh, versus uh, unnecessary suffering. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, it seems that, you know, a lot of people, you know, do suffer, but it is often, you know, just inward and, um, and, and, you know, being able to direct that towards, you know, how this is affecting others can, uh, can be a way to kind of work through that when, you know, when it is just when we're just like in our own bubble it's it's um yeah it, it it's just it's it's continual and you know it's uh, uh it's just like spiraling downward mm -hmm. it's uh one thing i wanted to mention was when harrison was talking about the referencing dabrowski saying that the, the process involves coming face to face with some aspect of yourself that shocks you that you're horrified by etc um that very often um Okay, life can throw those up at you, but it's I think the natural tendency to to self justify, etc., can be uh, can override that, install that process, or, yeah. or prevent anything positive from coming from that. And that's why I think it's very useful to have other people who could would actively and not be afraid to uh, tell you set you straight, set you straight, basically tell you about those things about yourself, because that really is an uh, uh, increases the chances, increases your abilities effectively uh, by proxy of being able to see parts of yourself that you, as, as you were saying, Harrison, that, that you weren't aware of or you hadn't seen before or when you get glimpses of them, you um, you dismiss them or justify them and, and they go away. Uh, mm -hmm. But on the, the, the... You mentioned guilt, you know, um, and it's associated with shame. There's a, uh, in the book... The quote is, the feeling of guilt, as we have already pointed out, is an indispensable developmental element for every moral individual and is strongly manifested in persons capable of accelerated development. Guilt forms an indispensable creative tension which lies at the root of true self-educational work. So he's talking a lot about, um, <clears throat> I mean, I don't think in the book, he, he goes, correct me if I'm wrong, he goes into the idea of other people helping you with your self-education, except... In, in the context of, I mean, there's a bit here about where he says um, self-education is an impossibility, but each of us has to make a choice, the choice to be open or closed to the uh, to the warnings or the uh, of conscience and the external community, which it represents. A son, he says, cannot educate himself. That is his father's responsibility, but the son can and must choose either to accept or reject his father's tuition. So, uh, and I think um, while that could apply to obviously other people and a group of people giving feedback to, to someone, it also applies to life in that we do not, 
engage in self-education ourselves. We don't, most people simply uh, go through life and have life experiences. They suffer to a certain extent, etc., and they either respond or don't respond to that suffering in one, you know, in, in, a, in a positive way or in a not so positive way. But it's almost like life, in that sense, is the teacher. Life, uh, human ex- existence, and human experience on this planet is the teacher, effectively. And those experiences are the teacher. And then it's up to, as you just said, up to you, uh, up to the person, to decide whether or not they will uh, accept or reject that teaching. But of course. The key point in that is to understand that that is the, effectively the meaning of life, that life, that is the, effectively the meaning of human existence, uh, where life experiences are, serve as, as, a, as, a, as a teaching tool, uh, as lessons. As a, these experiences are lessons for the individual to learn from. And if you don't realize that, then you're less likely to actually engage with that process uh, of um, seeing experiences, in particular painful experiences, as something there as an opportunity, uh, an opportunity presented to you to learn from. And if you actively engage in that, uh, if you have that in your mind and you actively engage in that process, then you have a much better chance of getting something from all experiences, in particular painful experiences, because they're felt more more keenly. Um, but there was, there was one thing on, on shame that I wanted to say on, on guilt. I mean, he mentions guilt, but there's a story on Sat from a few days ago about shame, and this, the title is a study. This is a, an academic study from um, the journal uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And the, the title is, Study finds that shame allows us to anticipate social devaluation and can motivate us to be better people. So it's basically a, uh, an article that, pretty much um, in a way confirms what uh, part of what Dabrowski uh, is talking about. Um, they basically say that the function of shame is to prevent us from damaging our social relationships or to motivate us, motivate us to repair them. They say, in this world, your life depended on others. In, in, the, you know, in, in life, let's say, your, your life depends on others valuing you enough valuing you enough to give you and your children food protection and care. The more you are valued by the individuals with whom you live, uh, the more weight they put on your welfare in making decisions. Um, so, and also, well, they're talking about ancestors, but I mean, it applies today. They're explaining why shame, the, the purpose of shame today. Uh, life and our ancestors were selected for a neural program, i.e. shame, that today makes you care about how much you value how much others value you and motivates you to avoid or conceal things that would trigger negative re-evaluations of you and by others. So it's basically the function of shame and how shame um, is, is effectively a positive thing, a positive human uh, response um, to kind of keep you in line, effectively, like you were saying earlier on, Harrison, and because you value community and you know being part of, of your local tribe or your local community. But... The problem, I think, with that today is that so many people in the world today don't really live in a kind of a community or, or that aspect of, of feeling a motivation to act in a proper way so that you don't get shamed or guilted or whatever or kicked out by your community isn't really there in a lot of situations because people can today live isolated and are encouraged to live isolated lives where 
you know, as long as they've got enough money, they can feed themselves and uh, and they can entertain themselves. Most importantly, the the previous function uh, of community life, where people will have fi- find the entertainment and happiness and joy from other people in their community, has been to a certain extent done away with and replaced with uh, effectively the same kind of well, in theory, the same kind of stimulation, but you can engage in it in complete isolation with like you know video games and other um, kind of uh, mm-hmm. other distractions provided uh, by technology um, and of course I would think this would uh, this has a negative effect in that that dampens down the opportunity for people to feel shame or feel feel like uh, feel motivated to to aspire to improve themselves and be better people and not engage in, you know, correct the faults and traits, the, the, the traits within themselves that are not community-oriented, uh, they don't have the motivation to do that anymore. So those kind of traits will remain in people and they'll miss the mm-hmm. opportunity to develop uh, in the way that Brodsky describes. There, mm-hmm. There's a great quote in the introduction of the book I'd like to read on this point. Um, here we go. <clears throat> this is from Dr. Maurer. So he writes... Individuals who live openly, under the judgment and with the counsel of their fellows, make, on average, far better and better disciplined decisions than do persons who operate secretly, evasively, dishonestly. If we are committed to the practice of hiding certain of our actions and thus avoiding the consequences they would have if known, we are inevitably weak in the face of temptation, in that now impulse is easily dominant over prudential concerns. Willpower, it seems, is much more a matter of being, quote, in community than of having a special faculty or strength in oneself. And then, of course, he adds the caveat to that important point about having people you can trust. But what if the community, group, or society is itself wrong? Isn't it then Mm -hmm. folly to submit to its virtues and disciplines? And here we have the importance of why SOT, for example, exists, because this is where knowledge of the world and how it works comes in. Um, yeah, yeah you, you Neil, are more... I think... Go ahead. That, that caveat that Moore made there is probably the, the, the most Dabrowskian um, part of it, because I think Dabrowski would agree with like, everything that uh-huh. Joe, Joe said, for example, but... The thing about shame is that shame can be, um, it will, I, I'd say it's, it's context dependent because yeah. depending on the environment yeah. you're living in, the people surrounding you, then that shame can be either a positive or a negative thing. If you're surrounded by people who are not only knowledgeable about human development and who have achieved a certain level of development themselves, themselves then they can guide you through the process and kind of perhaps shame you in a positive way. But if you're surrounded by people who aren't very developed, if you're part of a social group that is that routinely and uh, um, habitually engages in shameful behavior, you may be shamed for not doing so. And we see this in all kinds of situations um, where people are shamed for doing the right thing. It may be even in a job situation, in a corporate situation, where if you make the what you see like based on your own value system as the right choice, then you might be shamed for it. You might, um, let's say, you know, rape victims are often often shamed for coming forward or even shamed for being raped in the first place. 
And so this is a total kind of perversion of shame because it is, it is still, in a sense, it's still being used in its original purpose to get people back in line, but it's getting people back in line into a system that is fundamentally wrong in and of itself. So I, I think that, uh, that the important thing, one of the important things that you said, Joe, was that, that the, it really, it depends um, on, I think, the type of community that you are a part of, because there are um, universal positive aspects of being part of a community and what that community can do for, for every individual in that community. But it really depends on the nature of that community. And I think in our modern society, we have developed really um, dysfunctional societies. Um, and that means communities on every level from the family structure where we have this kind of, where we can have this narcissistic family dynamic uh, that, that book by the pressman um, to, to entire societal um, distortions of what it actually means to be human to the extent where people are shamed for for being the right thing for be, for for doing the right thing or for having uh, higher values that come in conflict with the with the dominant values of the society or lack of values mm. so yeah just to add that caveat that uh, that shame is important in it does depend on the the nature of the community in question yeah so it seems that um, you know our change Shane, I just want to go to a call here for a second. We have a we have Andres on the line. Hi, Andres. Can you can you hear us? Uh, yes. If you're speaking to me, yeah, yes. yes, Andres. Hi, Andres. Hey, how you doing? Very good. Welcome. Thank you. Um, can I make a comment? Yes. Please. Well, it's a, it's a reflection I've had. Uh, um, you know, when I remember when I was a child. And I had this uh, kind of a naive idea of what happiness should be like. And I realize now it was largely shaped by what you see in the media. So if you watch a movie, like a Hollywood classical movie, in which the hero um, uh, makes a lot of money, defeats the bad guy, gets the girl, and so on. And then at the end of the movie, he's just happy forever. And you sort of imagine that he uh, is going to carry on his life and, you know, in a... Um, in a consecutive string of uh, smiles and laughter forever. And you think, yeah, that's what I want to do. You know, that's what I want to have. I want to have something that makes me have smiles and laughter for the rest of my life. And that's what happiness is going to be like, you know? Mm. So obviously this is not right. This is not true. I come to realize that uh, happiness uh, is not like that. In fact, it's probably unhealthy for the human brain, I would imagine, to be all the time on a high, like uh, even biochemically, I, I think, your brain probably needs to go down a few times, you know. Uh, and then from a spiritual or psychological point of view, uh, the things that you're explaining make it quite clear that uh, suffering is involved in the process. So um, it's kind of like a, a few questions and maybe just uh, um, a request for, for your reflections on this. Uh, first of all, it, since it looks like we need a new um, definition of happiness, one that does not include just being smiling all the time, but, you know, that somehow encompasses the ups and downs of life, how could we uh, define this new sort of happiness? And secondly, how could we sell this, um, this new concept to other people who are still under the impression that somehow they should just have a good time while they're alive? You see what I mean? Yep. So, for example, for me, if I were to answer this question, I would say 
um, a good life, like a happy life, would be one with meaning. And then you can feel that has a, a purpose, and that this purpose motivates you. And obviously, throughout uh, the fact of following this purpose, you're going to have, you know, um, a few bruises along the way, but that's okay, because it's part of the ride, you know. So this is how I would say it, but I know how, I, how you guys thought about it. Oh, and something else, just in case I don't have a chance to ask, considering that I'm, I've spoken about, you know, Hollywood movies, how the media portrays a, a fake image of what happiness should be, can you guys think of any media representation that is more accurate to what real happiness would be like? So a movie or a, a, you know, a play, a book, something that you think, yeah, this actually shows a more objective, realistic, achievable uh, sense of fulfillment for a human being. Well, um, on the on the suffering, <clears throat> on the happiness thing, whether we should all want to be happy and laughing and jolly forever, uh, I think that's pretty obviously wrong. <clears throat> in the sense that, yeah, the only reason that we feel happy is because we have a comparison of suffering. So if you don't suffer, you don't even know what happiness is. Imagine mm -hmm. an existence where you're happy all the time and you never suffer. You have no you have no even I mean if you lived in that state for long enough you would forget what suffering, any suffering you experienced, you would forget what it's like. So that would no longer be mm -hmm. called happiness because you've nothing to compare it to. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, we only know the high points, the elation, the joy in comparison to the, the downtimes, when we're unhappy, when we're sad. So it seems at this level, uh, suffering, if you want to be happy, you have to suffer. So you should be thankful for your mm -hmm. suffering because it provides an opportunity for you to have some joy. Mm -hmm. um, and joy, yeah, joy is also an essential part of it. Uh, just to, in case anyone is, is getting the idea that um, Dabrowski that everyone should just be miserable all the time. That's not the case either. And I think that I think Andres um, got to a very important part of it is to have um, a sense of meaning or purpose in one's life that that one is is actively working at. Because there is, <clears throat> as Dabrowski would say or did say that that joy and creativity were just as important as the as the suffering. But um, but like you were saying, Joe, they, they come together. And often they are intertwined with each other. I mean, I, I know me personally, like um, when I'm reading some news stories or even watching a movie where there is something that is, is genuinely, that I, that I think is just genuinely good or happy, like it'll make right. There is a, there is a suffering that is just intertwined with that, uh, with that, with that joy. And they, they kind of can just be mingled and more, more complex and uh, exist side by side with each other, where there is even joy in uh, joy in the suffering and suffering in the joy. Um, but, mm -hmm. uh, as for as for the movie, I'm still trying to think of one, and if if I think of one, I'll, yeah. I'll come up with it. But. I'm not surprised that the, 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 that's hard to find, hard to think of one. Andres, we're gonna let you go. Okay. All right. Thanks for calling. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. Uh, thanks, got, Andres. We have. Bye, uh, we have another call now. I'm going to go straight to it. Uh, hi, is that uh, TC? Yeah, hi, guys. How are you? Hey, TC. Hi. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm okay. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Yes. Perfect. Great. Um, 
Yeah, on the subject of um, how we actually cope with suffering, because um, we were saying that it's something that we're going to face or it's something that we have to go through, but it's incredibly uh, tough and difficult to deal with, difficult to face. And um, so uh, something I've, I've been experimenting with myself recently is is just how you change your attitude towards towards it. Um, and it kind of rem- reminds me in a way of uh, anyone who's familiar with the book Political Ponderology. Um, Lobachevsky describes um, a time when I think he was locked up or something, being continuously interrogated um, and, you know, over time, um, until it got kind of got to the point for him where... Um, he kind of, I don't know, managed to raise some level of will uh, against his interrogator and changed his attitude towards his interrogator. Um, and kind of uh, during during one of the interrogations, then uh, they were they were hounding and hassling him, questioning him, and um, he just sat there and they not really saying anything and not reacting and. When they said, you know, what, what, what's, what's the matter with you? He just kind of said, um, uh, what was it now? I'm just one, well, I'm just wondering why it is that so many of you guys end up in asylums. Um, <laughs> after doing that kind of work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, but it were only, it was only when Lobachevsky had gotten to a, a point where it kind of accepted what was happening to him, that he was able to change his attitude towards it. Um, and one of the terms I, I like to use, like if we're talking about God or, you know, something higher than yourself or whatever is, is the idea of the, the universe, uh, how we experience the universe and what the universe gives to us. And um, so in quite uh, difficult moments of suffering I've, I've kind of started changing my attitude towards it and seeing it as a gift and being as painful as it is thinking thinking to myself um this is a gift and being grateful for it even though it hurts um it's well some sometimes i do anyway some, sometimes depending on how that day's been in particular, my attitude might be, bring it on, do your worst. Um, mm-hmm. You know, is this, is this all you've got? Um, <laughs> Good one. Yeah, but um, I think when you, you know, so, so it's your attitude towards it, how you, how you view it, you know, if you, if you can, if you can muster up the, the ability to, to change the way you view it and rather than see it as a, um, something to be avoided and, or something to even be battled against, fought against. Um, I watched a, vid- a video recently of uh, someone who was talking about like, impulse control and it being like a tug of war sometimes. Um, and that, actually one response that you can choose is to just let go of the rope uh, rather than actually battling against it. And I think that comes under this heading of how you change your attitude towards suffering. Um, so yeah, if you can, 
well, if you can welcome it in a way, um, knowing that it's you, you probably you know what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and and you know what might lie at the other side uh, could be could be even better than what you've got now, and maybe that can help you go through it. Absolutely, having a bit of faith in the process, and and that's what I get back to. Uh, at least it's been on my mind recently is that the awareness that it's a process. Uh, that mm. life in general is a process and any period of, of suffering or pain or hardship or, you know, introspection, whatever, is also part of that process. It's a, it's a, <clears throat> it's a focused part of that process. <clears throat> Sorry. And it's, um, to, to have that understanding, I think, helps an awful lot. Because, and I think that almost makes a difference between conscious suffering, as Shane was uh, mentioning earlier, Gurdjieff's conscious suffering versus unconscious suffering or useful suffering versus useless suffering where if you're not aware that the, that there is a reason why you're suffering and that if if you engage in it you can actually learn something from it and even speed up the process that helps an awful lot and that is basically conscious suffering where you actually accept the suffering you're aware of it you bring your conscious attention to mm -hmm. it and you realize that it's happening so many people just suffer unconsciously you know and, and mm -hmm. the, the only thing that they do is try and find a way to immediately stop the pain from happening, stop stop the feeling, you know, dissociate, engage in some uh, sensory or dissociative uh, pursuits to, to, to take their mind off. And it's 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 like it's slapping away a, a very valuable opportunity, you know, when mm. people do that. You know, it's just dismissing something that's crucial for, especially for people who are... Uh, Actively, at least intellectually, understand that they're engaged. That they that they've made a, made a, a statement, effectively, and, and they're living their lives uh, for the purpose of trying to uh, evolve and, and become better human beings. Effectively, uh, people who who have made that decision and are aware of that should understand also that uh, the suffering part of it is something that needs to be engaged in and understood for what it is. And of course, no one should just you know there, you should. Uh, you're entitled to get some help and some look for some uh, relief from the suffering as well, but not to the point of completely excluding it and running away from it. You know. Mm. Yeah, and and I think bef before you can, this is where the um, the importance of the it's a good a, a pretty much a good Jeffian term, but um, the importance of the the moral bankruptcy or the psychic bankruptcy comes into it um, in terms of when you've lived a normal life uh, in that primitively or primarily integrated state, um, it's only a moral bankruptcy that can lead you to the understanding uh, that the, I think the best quote from Gurdjieff about uh, suffering is the one of, uh, um, what is it now? Uh, there is suffering and you cannot avoid suffering, but you can choose your suffering. Mm -hmm. Because either, whichever, whichever route you take, um, I don't know, was it, was it, was it Socrates who, there was the, the, the discussion about what is the, uh, best way to live your life, whether it's the pursuit of pleasure and happiness the, in the hedonistic sense or whether it's the pursuit of knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think um, that's a good way of summing it up in terms of 
either uh, primarily integrated or multi-level integration. Um, either way, suffering comes with it because if you if you spend your life um, living to, to, to try and be distracted and living to try and uh, pursue pleasure and happiness, um, you end up with a lot of blind spots and those then that creates chaos in your life and that creates suffering mm -hmm. so either way you can't escape it but you you have to you have to hit that that bankruptcy first first mm -hmm. of all in order to think right well okay if, if it's suffering either way then maybe there's a better way to choose yeah yeah mm -hmm. Well, um, I, I just wanted to say I had a, a, couple, a little technical difficulty calling in, uh, but for those who, who try in the future, um, I had trouble with Chrome, but um, I downloaded Firefox and it's, it's working fine now. So maybe try that anybody else. All right. Thanks. Uh, can we call you as a TC? Yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks, TC. Thanks, guys. Hope to talk to you again soon. Cheers. All right. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Um, I just want to go to Bahar here. Uh, Bahar. Yes. Are you there? Are you receiving us? I have. <laughs> yes. I was just listening with lots mm -hmm. of interest. Um, so I haven't read his book, but I've been reading some articles um, that we have on SOD about him. And since you guys were talking about uh, mainstream psychology, there was this one thing that I read and I wanted to share it with you guys and the listeners. Um, so there's this Dabrowski scholar, and uh, he explained in a video, I think, that in mainstream psychology, having a strong or positive self-concept or self-esteem is the goal. Whereas the goal in the theory of positive disintegration is rather different. In TPD, we need to disintegrate, even destroy the self to split ourselves into a subject and object so that we see the higher and lower, the way the world ought to be versus the way it is, but also the way I ought to be versus the way I am is part of that inner conflict. And he says, uh, the way I viewed myself wasn't really me. That's what other people said I was. That's what other people say I am. So like you guys said, he's saying that, you know, um, Feeling pain and feeling like you're in the deepest pit of the world and you're in hell and you feel like you've been destroyed. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing and it's good to stay there for a while and to really look at why you're feeling that way and to find ways on how to get out of it and to get out of it as a better person. And like you said, Joe, it's also important to, I think you said, uh, to be in a community and to share about your struggles and to ask for help. And yeah, that was just one thing I wanted to share. And um, reading about it, I do have one question mm -hmm. for you guys. And that is that um, once positive reintegration takes place, is it stable and lasting or is there still a possibility for a relapse? Hmm. Well, I'll take a stab at that one. Um, oh boy. I think I think what 
I think what Dabrowski would say is probably, well, it, it can be both. That he'd say that there probably is um, a time when it is completely stable, but that was what he called level five, the highest level of development that very few people ever achieve. And that for everyone else, that there is, it, it is a process and it is, um, it is probably a lifelong process. Um, in the book, mm -hmm. In Personality Shaping, he gives um, five, I believe five um, kind of little biographies of individuals, like case studies that he does. And a few of them are like, uh, one is Beethoven, one is uh, St. Augustine. And then um, in this edition, we included a few others that weren't included in the original edition um, as a, you know, a special appendices. So that included, um, I believe, Unamuno and I think Kierkegaard. I can't remember. Yes. Um, yeah. And, oh, and he included Beethoven there. Yeah, I think. Um, um, but yeah, so there's there's several in there. And in every one of those cases, even though um, it's obvious that Dabrowski had a, a high regard for these individuals um, and that reading their life stories, they did engage in um, a, in a high degree of self-work relative to the vast majority of people. They were still uncompleted personalities. Um, I, the, one of the most fascinating for me was, uh, was Beethoven's story because um, um, I didn't really know a lot about Beethoven. Yeah, I, I would read not have considered life. Beethoven. Yeah. A developed man. Beethoven. Beethoven. <laughs> yeah. Beethoven <laughs> was not the nice guy. But anyway, go on. But yeah, and that's that's the point is that I I knew very little about him. Um, just you know a few anecdotes. But reading this, I could see that yeah he and and Dabrowski talks about all that. Just how how much of a a difficult and ornery and just nasty person he could be. But by the but at the end of his life, through all that struggle, he kind of he he achieved. A lot relative to to where he started out, and um, but never ended up getting to that point of totally of total integration. Um, in fact, um, just from the the reading I've done and the interviews that I've seen with with Dabrowski, the only two people that he even um, or the the few people that he speculated about, um, some of them were kind of dodgy because two of the examples he gave were. Socrates and Jesus, but being such you know ancient personalities, ancient people, we we can't really know a lot about their lives. I right. mean, in fact, probably Jesus didn't even actually exist as as um, de depicted in the Gospels. And Socrates, we only know him through Plato. But the only contemporary people that he even speculated about were perhaps Abraham Lincoln and and mm -hmm. Dag Hammarskjöld. And even then, he'd say he couldn't go very far uh, in his determination of those because he didn't know all of their all of the, the details of their lives. So really, even then, I think that um, um, at least for for Dabrowski, level five was more of like an, an ideal. It's mm. hard to even know hard to even know how many people, if any, get there. Um, I might include Gurdjieff in, in there, mm. um, but uh, but again, I can't get inside of of Gurdjieff's head, so so it's hard to know exactly everything that he experienced in his life, even up to his death. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I know about Socrates is that, well, I learned from Bill and Ted's uh, Excellent Adventure, you know? So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm, I think I'm in, kidding. I think in the end... I know less than that. Go on. If you're in this place, you're, so, you're here to suffer. And if well, you're not suffering here anymore, poof, you're gone. Yeah, poof, yeah, you're gone. But the thing is, um, obviously, I don't... This is a great book. 
and there's a lot of very good things in it and a lot of very good concepts that make a lot of sense to us and to people who who like what we do and are a part of what we do. But I think it's, you know, there are obviously a few aspects where it's clear that, um, like 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 everybody, Dabrowski did not have the whole uh, potato, the whole mm-hmm. enchilada. The whole legume. The whole, the whole pot, banana. The whole pot of bone broth. Um, he, uh, for example, there's one part that when I was annotating or, or writing in, in the book, um, where he's talking about love. It's all good, you know, loving one's neighbor. He says, you know, most most people don't really get it at that point. Even they usually love, do something only for their close family and friends. Oh, they sacrifice only love to the extent of suiting their self-interest. Exactly yeah. well, what they can get from it. Uh, but he says. Um, he says, love of our fellow creatures should also be extended to our enemies. Uh, by looking at a man, not as someone who is our personal enemy, but as someone who acts erroneously because of inherited inclinations, um, environmental influences, and low level of self-educating consciousness, we assume an impersonal attitude toward that man. And such an attitude toward an enemy is a clear sign of one adva- one's advance toward the ideal personality. And I just wrote uh, alongside that, Wrong, um, <laughs> because um, I think he's gone a bit too far in the Jesus direction there, uh, mm-hmm. in the sense that that idea of loving your enemies, as he's described, um, isn't, it, at least from our perspective, isn't isn't the way to go. I mean, if, if there are obviously, <clears throat> if if you go that route where you see people who are attacking you or, or out to get you, basically, and, and have bad intentions towards you, you should not love them you should first and foremost defend yourself and defend your right uh, to be and do what you're doing uh, against what uh, others may be trying to to stop you from doing uh, so uh, i think he's um, but th- that's just a small point because regardless of the people that we that, that we like and we think very highly of in terms of what they what they wrote about and what they taught like gurdjieff or moraviev or or Dabrowski or whatever, uh, not, we can find little things mm. that w- in, in, in their work that were maybe slightly off, but that's just a, they're just small points. Um, I wanted to just introduce uh, a concept here that is to, that's part of this idea of suffering that we've been talking about and how it leads to you know, positive um, integration, disintegration, integration on a higher level, etc., becoming a better person, you know. Uh, all of that esoteric stuff. Some people, we, we see in the world that people, so everybody suffers, let's say. Okay, so everybody suffers to some extent. But it seems to me that there are a lot of people in the world who don't suffer so much that you could take one person and subject them to a certain other, observe them having a certain experience or they would be subjected to a certain experience of suffering. And they, to a certain extent, it would apparently not really affect them it wouldn't provide any kind of shock. It wouldn't provoke provoke in them the same kind of reaction it would would provoke in another person. So, mm-hmm. my question is: are, Does suffering affect different people in different ways, uh, according to Dabrowski? Mm-hmm. And in, to that extent, Absolutely. do some people suffer less than others, even when those two people experience externally? The same, uh, the same extent or the same uh, level of suffering. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, in fact, Dabrowski would say those that that suffer less are the less developed and the least developed. And he talked about psychopathy in this regard. So the psychopaths are kind of the epitome of not suffering. If you want to be a totally happy individual and, and smiling and, uh, and laughing the rest of your days, then um, that's pretty much what psychopaths are like because they have no, no capacity for that kind of internal suffering that we're talking about. Of course, they can feel pain, but uh, that's not the kind of suffering that I think we've been discussing. And so the, the way Dabrowski phrased this was in terms of what he called uh, overexcitabilities. So this is basically your inherited, um, an inherited capacity for different types of um, experience or response to certain kinds of stimuli. So um, he divided that into five different kinds, but one of which was the the um, the one that I think we're referencing, which is emotional over overexcitability, and this is basically the the um, the amount of reaction you'll get out of a certain stimulus, and in in uh, practical terms, this can be just like the example I used of watching a movie. You can you can sit down a hundred people uh, to watch a movie that in, that can involve some some really kind of deep stuff, um, like really um, intense and complex um, relationship dynamics, or um, um, where, where the or metaphors or metaphors, yeah, and and it can really deeply move certain people and other people. It, it it won't provoke any reaction, and they might just say, "Well, that was a that was a bad movie," but that that applies to so many levels and in so many different situations, even in just in regular life. Like, uh, and the the one that's still like just the most obvious one to me is people's reaction to to torture and murder, and um, just to see if for ex for example, we've had this for the last years. We've had. Uh, ISIS in the news and, you know, the, the videos of just these horrendous tortures and murders. And if you think about the individuals involved who are doing this, they're not disgusted by their own acts. They're not moved in any way. In fact, they, they get some enjoyment out of them. But you'll get another person who, I think the majority of people, first of all, who are just horrified by that and can't watch it, can't see it even. They can't even look at it. And they can't, not only can they not look at it, they can't comprehend themselves doing that sorts of that sort of thing and they would never and never have and never will do such a sort of thing and then there's the people that do it and enjoy it and uh so there is that that uh that wide range of uh, uh among humanity of their their ability to be to be affected by by certain things so so yeah, Joe, I, that I think you you just said it pretty well. There are some who 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 can be subjected to the exact same experience. Some will suffer deeply, and some it will just fly right off of them. They're like Eflon. And yeah, I think, I think Dabrowski was. was yeah. Sorry, yeah, Dabrowski was quite clear, wasn't he, that he was talking about a minority of people yeah. who have the developmental potential. Yep, he, he says yeah, so explicitly. He, yeah which already puts him on the fringe of psychology because that's a no-no. No, 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 no. We're all basically the same functional units and the goal is to extract the maximum happiness or elevate mm -hmm. them all as much as possible to a certain level of happiness. But he comes along and says, no, 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 that's, that's impossible for these reasons. And then he homes in on really a small class or set of classes of people who have sufficient, uh, you named, overexcitability 
potential within them to respond to external stimuli and develop from them. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if I remember correctly, but um, the Browski's definition of you know, uh, what it is to be a psychopath was a lot more, I believe, a lot more broad than you know the the usage that that we use mm -hmm. uh, today. And you know, I, th I think he would classify you know, anybody who basically exists at this primary level of you know the, these uh, base instincts and drives. Uh, and who can't really go beyond uh, that that level as somebody who is a psychopath. Yeah, in in his English works, the, the distinction is kind is pretty close to the way we think about psychopaths. But I think I've heard in conversation he used the word. I mean, he was Polish, uh, and so I guess he wasn't. Sometimes he didn't use the English words, you know, precisely according to the way English speakers do. But he would call up any person at level one psychopathic because in essence they had in his mind a a, a sick mind or a you know a diseased mind which is what right. psychopathy means and so but he but in his works um in his later english works it's more clear that he went like he does use psychopath more often than not in terms of the the way we think about it and that and that robert hare has developed as this kind of specific personality type which is uh, a small minority but uh mm. but it, what's interesting, I think, about his theory that he points out just how um, just how much in common the uh, the dominant psyche of humanity is to that of a psychopath. Mm -hmm. So the he, he he basically shows the um, just uh, all the things in that most that a lot of people, maybe even most people, like maybe fifty percent or a bit more, have in common with psychopaths. In, in, that shows in the way they react to the world and the way that they live, live their lives and, uh, and the capacity or lack of capacity that they have for further development. So um, in, he doesn't talk about it in his books, but in, again, I've heard and, and read that in conversation, he said that he thought that perhaps, I think he said maybe 30% of, of people in his clinical practice seem to show um, signs of positive multi-level disintegration. So these are the people with developmental potential, and that um, 50 to 60 percent were um, or more were basically at that lowest level. That doesn't necessarily mean they didn't have any potential, but they they didn't show any signs of it. Um, it if they had the the kind of seed or the um, you know the the spark of that within them, it had never been um, never been provoked, never been brought out in any way. And I think a lot of that perhaps has something to do with the um, just the, the general trend of of society, because the society that we live in uh, worldwide doesn't uh, or isn't conducive to personality development. Right. Well, that's we don't have. Yeah, that's seen that? in in, um, in what we were talking about earlier in the fact that the the this, the what's the term psychological community or the, the science of psychology today and the people in control of it when someone comes along with one of uh, with with uh, an illness of this description where they feel disconnected or or, um, or or unhappy with the world in some way and it's affecting them they're depressed whatever um, that that the, the approach or the response to that by the authorities the psych the psychological authorities in this world is to say oh you something wrong with you 
i.e. what could possibly be wrong with this world. There's nothing possibly uh, so horribly wrong with this world that it would cause you to have such a bleak view of things. So we obviously need to fix you. You're broken. So, and they are the authority. So that, that, I mean, that says that we live in a society that is uh, at, the, at the primitive level of uh, integration, basically. The, the, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, and not only that, uh, Neil, you pointed out that the guy that wrote the the introduction for this book was the pre- like then president of the APA. Mm-hmm. Well, nowadays the people involved in the APA and other American psychological institutions are the guys working at Guantanamo and figuring out ways of torturing people. Right. That's where our psychological community has gone right. to the facilitation of torture. It's absolutely like. Uh, I, yeah, that's one of those things that just leaves me speechless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, there's a couple of things I just wanted to again just point out from the book that he describes as um, the kind of questions, the kind of feelings or emotions that would uh, come up in someone who who had the potential to to be uh, to positively disintegrate and be re reintegrated on a on a kind of higher let's say level is um he talks about the fundamental query of who am i and where am i going uh, what is it in myself that is not me what is it that i am becoming although it is not yet crystallized and what should i str- and what should i strive with persistent will to make myself although it is not yet myself through meditation contemplation and continuous effort and also things like I can no I can no longer live like this. I must find for myself a new form of life, and not a new form of cognizance, i.e., not just another way of looking at life, but a new, a totally new and different way of, of living and being. So those are kind of um, questions that, uh, if they come up in you, if you've had them come up in you in the, in the past and have led you to to look for something uh, new in that respect, then that's that's a good sign from. From from our perspective, um, but so many people you can you can be sure, and I'm sure you know, so many people in this world uh, never really ask themselves yeah. or, or pose those questions to themselves because they don't feel anything uh, in the right way or in a way that would cause that kind of disquiet or discontent in themselves to to a significant or to a sufficient extent yeah. that they that they would really think about those things and, and start on a on a new path, you know, and it's, um, and it's the first mistake of such people to assume that everyone else is asking the same questions. Mm. Because that's the first danger. That's where you run into trouble. Mm -hmm. And it seems that uh, there's other points in the book where he seems to get, he describes the process and the process does seem to be one of where you have these questions and you Try to find a new way of being, a new way of, of living, a new a new life, effectively, and and you simply go at that. You yourself don't uh, uh, educate yourself in a certain sense. You don't you don't create uh, anything new within yourself. It's a process that seems to come from kind of without. And your part in it is to simply keep on keeping on to to persist uh, in your drive and in your determination to. To change yourself in this way, or to find a new way of living, a new perspective uh, that you can't live the way you lived before, and you take action to to change that. And as a result of those persistent efforts, then something that is going on as a result of those efforts within you that you do not have conscious control over or even awareness of, something 
changes. There's a process there that that goes on beyond your conscious awareness, and it it ultimately can provide you with uh, with what you're seeking, which is a new perspective on life and a new way of living. And something fundamentally can change within you as a result of those consistent and persistent efforts in that direction. You mentioned conscience earlier, Joe. I think that's the the change. And maybe maybe Harrison can can develop this for me. Doesn't Dabrowski talk specifically about conscience when he talks about self-education and autotherapy? Um, he's referring to your voice of conscience and listening to it and becoming more in line with it. Yeah, and just developing it and finding it in the first place too, because one of the one of the uh, well, Joe listed those questions like, "What direction am I heading, or where am I going?" Um, there's a direction to to positive disintegration, and there seems to be these uni- universal features of it. And one of them is the the direction away from self-centeredness and towards more of a an altruistic or um, other-centered approach. And this this has to do this is this is part of conscience, and again, part of conscience is is this overexcitability, this reception of, um, of the information that we see when we, when we look around and we, we feel what others are feeling. So it's this intellectual and emotional awareness of the world, and it is tied to, uh, to a value system. So when, we have, when we're speaking of conscience, this is um, uh, we're directing our attention towards others and directing our actions towards doing something better for those around us, um, being a, a, you know, a positive force in our lives and the lives for others, and taking into account um, other people and this, the wider situation that we find ourselves in, and doing everything that we can for, um, for this higher purpose, which takes into account other people. So there's, in Dabrowski's work, there, there's, he, come, he kind of comes at conscience from all, all kinds of different sides and, mm. and ways of looking at it, but they... They're they're all on this this direction from you know away from that lower level into that higher level and everything associated with those levels, um, just one of which is is that um, going away from the self interest and self centeredness and towards that other centeredness, and part of that has to has to include also an intellectual understanding, so an analysis of 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 the world and of of values and and the right choice of action. And, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Somebody tell me what I was going to say. I forgot. Were you going to, were you going to get into the, the kind of bigger picture stuff? Yeah, go on. I'll <laughs> do. Say what well, Joe was going to say. I'll say what Joe, I, I'm going to read Joe's mind here and he can correct me if I, if the transmission fails. But um, I think one of the one of the ways of looking at this and applying the theory is kind of on the on the wider social level, because reading uh, like reading personality shaping, for example, it's very much focused on the the inner inner process of an individual um, towards personality. But that has um, that can have effects. Um, well, all aspects of this theory and of human nature in general will affect the wider kind of social atmosphere and environment. So we already talked about some of the aspects of society in general that 
not only aren't conducive to positive disintegration, but um, but also are just well, well, they're totally um, at odds with it. And if we we can ask the question why, and I think that um, first of all, uh, Ponderology by Lobachevsky it gets into some of these more macrosocial issues. But if we just kind of um, if we look at it in terms of positive disintegration, I think what we see first of all is that the the leaders, um, the kind of the people in in positions of influence in all aspects of society are at this low level of development. And if we look at it in terms of countries, um, if we look at the United States, for example, we have just prime examples of that when we look at the candidates for president in this upcoming uh, election, presidential election. None of them are a personality. <laughs> yes. We have the choice between a baboon and a witch and a donkey. Yep. And just just look at Trump. I mean, a couple a month or two ago, we had a an article on Sot on uh, why Trump is the textbook narcissist, and you can just see this in everything that he says and does. He has no no capacity for self reflection or self critic uh, or uh, self criticism or uh, admitting that he's wrong. He's totally self assured. Everything he says is right. He's got an immediate answer for everything. He he puts no thought into um, into his policies or his his opinions or um, just anything that he says in his speeches. If you look at his history, I mean, he's a, a practical businessman, which is, um, I mean, that's uh, well. Nebraska gives a lot of examples of of primary integration and how they how they and how these individuals operate fairly well in the business world and just in in regular jobs and this guy's been a snake for his entire career he has he hasn't even been very successful he's most of his projects end up failing mm. and uh, and yet he's got the an ego and the size of his hairdo um mm. it's he's he's just a a reprehensible I'll, human being in general yeah and, i'll tell i'll tell you what trump is trump is a <laughs> I, I i mean that guy if I if I could get a hold of him, you know what I'd do him? I'd bloody well And you know, he he would probably not be able to run for president after that because I would just have just, you know, taught him such a lesson that he wouldn't be able to for a week. <laughs> Sorry, was there some interference there? Did you not get all that? I think there might have been a sensor uh, on the sh- was there a sen- Who's the censor? Yeah. That's terrible. I'm going to have to say all that again now. No, I'm not going to say it all again. Anyway. <laughs> but um, even more broadly than, than the specific examples you, you give of mm-hmm. candidates for the next president of the United States, Harrison, the, <clears throat> the U.S. structure, power structure as a whole, is the regime is 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 a classic case of primary integration mm-hmm. on a macro social scale and it, this is how revolutionary this idea is that far from being the pinnacle of civilization you know the lofty city on a hill that the US projects itself to be to the whole world actually in developmental terms the scale is completely reversed and it's the least developed mm-hmm. the least not sort of in the middle it's in the exact opposite 
it's uh, in terms of civilization, it's it's actually the, at the lowest point. It's at, it's not even at entry level. Yeah, you know, and and in, in just in these terms, it needs to go through a profound disintegration mm-hmm. just to get on the ladder of really becoming and actually having it, what it projects as civilization matching with what it actually is as a civilization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that, well, for, first of all, it's just any society is made up of, of the individuals within it. And I think that the you can kind of get the, the temperature of a society. Um, well, you can look at the society itself and get, the, get, the, get a reading on the individuals or vice versa. And so that's why I think that um, that when you look at uh, a society like American civilization, so-called, then there, there's all kinds of there's a, a rich wealth of material from which to draw and to, to get clues from. And that's where these like looking at the individual cases can help out. And I just think of the, the State Department briefings um, that, you know, you, you can see um, highlights from daily. Either you know it was Saki for a while, and then now we've got people like like Mark Toner and Kirby. John Kirby. And mm-hmm. if you do look at the the level of of discourse and communication, it's it's absent. It's not there. the 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 level of hubris and arrogance is just striking. And the evasiveness in, and dishonesty. Yeah, exactly. It's primary and, uh, integration, one on one. And you can just see that there's there's no consideration, no no depth of thought. Like when someone, when Matt Lee asks Kirby a question, and he either just won't answer it, and and he's not he, he won't answer it, and then he'll get angry and uh, and snitty at at Matt Lee for asking the question. A real human being would look at the question and consider it and give a real answer to it. And we don't see that, and we don't see it on the level of international diplomacy and the way. The, the American government as a whole interacts with their nations. We can see that in the way that they interact with Russia yeah. and the Russian representatives. And that's an interesting case to see the difference in the just the level of um, of discourse between the Russian side and the American side. The Russian side has shown uh, so much more civilization in the way they communicate not only with other countries but with the world that it's just striking. And I think that has something to do with the history of Russia, and on the on the macro social level, what Russia as a as a as a large um, nation, as a large geographical entity, has gone through over over the past hundred years. Because the I, I think it's safe to say that that the first the Soviet Union and Russia went through a massive disintegration, and there was a, a large a huge amount of suffering. That accompanied that disintegration on the in, from the individual to the social, like at every level, mm-hmm. and that gives a certain kind of perspective that American people uh, do not have, mm-hmm. because for for so many years the the American people haven't gone through anything that even closely resembles that, and they have they have fought no wars on their own uh, on their own land for for generations, and and so there, I think that. Um, well, there's a few things. One, um, like like you're saying, that the American society, in order to achieve the, the first level, the entry level of civilization, has to go through a disintegration. On the other hand, we have we have Russia who has gone through a disintegration, and there is that sense of 
of looking and striving and long-suffering. There's that sense of we will have to make a sacrifice if we want things to be better in the future. We don't see that attitude in the States, because that's and that's the attitude that will be needed. What, what America, I think, would need would be a, a, a leadership um, and not just a, a one individual person, but a, an entire structure of, of leadership that is willing to ask, first of all, ask the questions, what is what is wrong with with American with America with the United States as it is, and what do we need to do? What what hard decisions do we have to make? What do we have to give up in order to get somewhere? Because um, because I think that Americans in general don't want to give up anything. They don't right. want to make any kind of personal sacrifice. And right. if that's the case, then nothing good will come out of it because that's what's essential. There has to be this this disintegration. There has to be uh, leaving something else behind in order for something better. And and we, I don't think we'll see that without um, kind of a uh, an external cause to this. Like things will disintegrate, not through their own will, not through any kind of conscious suffering uh, towards uh, uh, a future goal for the entire society, but through something imposed on them, which will just lead to a huge amount of unconscious suffering from that who knows what's possible you know it can go either way mm-hmm. but uh I, that's i think that's the direction things are going in in u.s society well the the scary thing is you know in thinking about you know how americans will deal with this you know type of uh, disintegration you know at least with russia uh and the collapse of the soviet union you know they have they had a long history of basically knowing how to deal with suffering and within the United States, it's, it's, you know, that's been completely absent. And, you know, we have, we're so entrenched in these ideas of uh, entitlement and um, American exceptionalism and, you know, self-esteem and all, all these ideas. They're so deeply um, entrenched in the minds of, of, of Americans and how we deal with things that, you know, when, when this disintegration does happen, you know, is, uh, is it just going to be this psychosis that yeah. people go into yeah. and, and basically people break down and Suicide. because we don't know how to deal with it? Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Well, just one, one example that I saw in the news that made this stand out for me was um, Maria Zakharova, the, the foreign ministry spokeswoman for, for Russia, and her interview on RT. And she was. She just gave a, like a few insights into the Russian mindset, and one of which was on war. And I think I've seen this expressed in many different ways: is that Russians know what war is, and they don't want war. They don't want it. It's not something they are actively pursuing, but they will fight it. And essentially, I think that's what what saying what that is saying is that, um, like I as an individual, or we as a as a nation, as a people we will suffer through things that, that are inevitable and we will do so, you know, as, um, as it becomes necessary, but it's not something we, we are seeking. We are seeking something different. Whereas from the American position, the, the American establishment is seeking war. They are seeking destruction and, and they are not willing to, to go through any kind of other suffering voluntarily. Um, you know, it's just, uh, it's just diametrically opposed these two different positions. And, um, I just, I, yeah, well, I don't even know what I want to say. About that. <laughs> okay. Um, 
Yeah, well, I was thinking we might just um, change topics uh, and briefly uh, look at, well, another topic, I suppose. So... That was our topic change. <laughs> Sound? Hang on, I'm just getting my other hat. Get your other, Neil has to get his other hat on. Okay, Hang on, is it on? No, oh, wait, wait. Okay, he's getting his hat on. All right, Neil's put his other hat on. He's also wearing a nice... Uh, nice dress. Dapper suit. <laughs> Go ahead. What's so our, our, yeah, what's our we, other topic? Well, we wanted to just uh, change over to... Um, well, some people want us to talk about earth changes. We'll talk a little bit about earth changes soon. But we just wanted to give a rundown on... Uh, a brief rundown on Syria because, you know... Uh, same old, same old, really. Ceasefire? Yeah, everybody likes a ceasefire now and again. Um, <clears throat> what's going on with the Syrian ceasefire? We've had some questions... Uh, about that recently. Um, what's uh, going on and what's going to continue happening, this is the next stage, is that the U.S. will try to, it will successfully, and is already doing it, encourage one of its 69 proxy groups to break the ceasefire as much as possible, which is exactly what they did through their forces in the Kiev regime in Ukraine. And they'll use it to provoke and provoke and provoke the Syrian army, the Syrian Kurds, the Russians to respond and retaliate so that they can hold up Russia as having broken the ceasefire. Even if Russia doesn't respond, what we will probably see are blatant ceasefire violations that will be simply portrayed in the media as the Russian side breaking it. So mm. that's what's going to happen. Yeah, my... my uh, take on the situation is that the whole ceasefire obviously has been brokered or negotiated by Russia. Russia has pushed it through um, and it has also given the hotline to the US. So the US, you know, John Kerry is sitting down there in the Ataika uh, base. He's got a little piece of sovereign US territory on the Russian base in Ataika and, um, and he's got the hotline John Kerry, there's a big red phone in front of him and he is picking up the phone and he's monitoring the ceasefire and any calls come in to him about who broke the ceasefire and then he has to um, agree that Russians will then bomb whoever broke the ceasefire on the words of John Kerry uh, via their hotline information and they'll have, to agree, they'll have to be happy with it, you know? I mean, so... That's the kind of situation. I mean, Russia broke the ceasefire. Everybody who who is real, everybody who's for peace. The whole point about this is it's propaganda. It's a propaganda uh, initiative by Russia to say let's have a ceasefire. Hey, every we're all talking about uh, this war is terrible and we need to stop it and the refugees and it's all horrible. Let's have a ceasefire. You know, all everybody who wants to who's into peace, let's let's have some peace and a ceasefire. And obviously, all the people who. Uh, you know, in the Western democracies, democracies including Turkey, which is not really a democracy, but anyway, um, they all have to say yes, ceasefire is good because you know nobody likes war, even though they all love it. They all have to say it's not, so they have to agree that a ceasefire is good, uh, and then they have to abide by it. And all the parties, all the different factions that are being supported by NATO and Turkey and the West inside Syria, they all have to decide if they're going to be party to the ceasefire or not. 
and they have to say, okay, well, we'll, we'll engage in ceasefire, yes, because you know, we're good people and we want to have Russia's holding out the carrot of anybody who uh, participates in the ceasefire and holds it might get a, an opportunity to have some kind of power in the, in the government afterwards, you know, after new elections down the line. So they all want, that's the carrot, so they're all going for that. Any of them that hold out and say, no, to hell we are ceasefire, we're not uh, having a part of it, then Russia gets to bomb them uh, legitimately and justifiably, and they have to, it has to be, you know, the US and Turkey and stuff would have to technically agree with that because people who don't abide by the ceasefire are clearly saying that they are uh, not interested in being part uh, in being part of any political process in, in Syria, therefore they're illeg- illegitimate. Um, so I think that's mainly what the ceasefire is about. Of course, the US will attempt, as you just said, Neil, to undermine that ceasefire and have um, you know various different people, their 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 agents, their mercenaries in 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 Syria, uh, break the ceasefire, and they may even engage in different uh, different provocations to make it look like Russia had broken the ceasefire in a certain sense by. That uh, I mean, they could have U.S. planes or covertly, effectively bombing hospitals, cer- like hospitals or certain areas in 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 Syria, and then claim it was the Russians. <clears throat> so there's all sorts of dirty tricks behind the scene. But I'm sure the Russians are very well aware of uh, of that possibility of that likelihood. So, um, but apart from that, yeah, uh, Turkey's still nuts. They're just a bunch of Erdogan government are, are crazy and getting crazier by the day. Uh, <coughs> how anybody can, in the right mind, can <coughs> anybody in the West can justify, you know, aligning themselves with Turkey or even talking to them at this point is ridiculous because they're so discredited. But um, they've more or less come out and said, "We love, you know, terrorists are us. We are ISIS. We love ISIS." And um, and apparently, it's okay to still uh, call them. Uh, a NATO member state and our partners and stuff, you know. But then, when you're when you've been partners with the head choppers in Saudi Arabia for decades, I mean, it's it's not hard to to um, to pass that one off on the on the gullible Western public. Um, yeah. So that's Syria for now. I'm sure things will change in the coming weeks. But Earth changes. Somebody want to talk about Earth changes? Are there any Earth changes? Have has the Earth changed? Uh, but before we do that, let's go to our Earth Change desk. Neil's just changed hats again. He's now got uh, a kind of a volcano-shaped hat on his head. Or no, it's a tor- it's a tornado-shaped hat on his head. That means he's going to be talking about Earth changes next. Uh, take it away, Neil. Blow us away. Yeah, um, I'm not actually aware of anything in the last no, few days. I'm afraid I haven't been paying attention to that. Um, yeah. I Sorry. know there no. have been... Um, yes, what? There have been uh, trumpet sounds again in West Island, Montreal. Mm-hmm. So they're coming back here and there. It was a very creepy screeching or squealing high-pitched squealing sound uh, just about a week ago uh, or less. Mm-hmm. Um, in, that, was in, that was in Canada as well, wasn't it? Or was it Canada? Yeah, I think so. That was in Canada, I think. And um, it was just bizarre, high-pitched tone 
apparently in the neighborhood. I mean, these things are very, very strange. They, they seem to all be ultimately be electromagnetic in nature through various types of uh, rays either coming in and interacting with the planet or maybe even being produced by the planet itself as it undergoes uh, changes. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, they've been going on for several years, these kind of strange noises in the sky, and apparently science is not interested, really. It's not big news, even though that somebody should have documented them by now. It's about, it was about three or four years since I did that sort report on them. And, yeah. and, and nobody takes them seriously, really. I mean, it's, it's probably one of the most interesting, most fascinating uh, scientific uh, areas of investigation. And, no, don't really want to know about that because we can't explain it, or our explanation for it would... Uh, might be a problem for some of our scientific theories, so we're just going to pretend it's not happening. But in, in terms of uh, people who are interested, you know, I think that particular video had a huge number of hits. So, Which one? You know, there is uh, uh, the uh, strange sounds. In the sky, yeah, like half a million people. It's not that big for YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> 500 million, maybe. But it's, yeah, it's, that's quite a lot of people, yeah. But I think the reason that, uh, to be honest, that the reason that, that got so many hits was because they put the word apocalypse in the title. And uh, out of those half a million people, 499,000 were all funny, <laughs> funny Christians. Because <laughs> they thought I was uh, saying something about Jebus. Jebus is coming. That, those yeah, the, that could be. That the, could trump, be sure. the trumpets of Jebus. <laughs> and he's coming back to, you know, play, play us a, a jazz tune or something and usher in the... Uh, the rapture, apocalypse, whatever. As long as Jesus comes back, I don't care. I'll watch any video that tells me Jesus is coming back. Even if he never existed, he can still come back. That's the power of Jesus. <laughs> In fact, you know, Harrison said earlier on the show that Jesus probably never existed, as he described. But does that, does that, does that not just testify to his power? <laughs> that a man of such importance in history could have had such an effect and never actually exist at the same time. Thank you for that. proved it. Thank you for that. Yeah. He obviously is the son of God because he never existed. Anyway. Um, yes. So we, nothing from our... Okay, so there's nothing from our... Really from our changes no, test not. for this week. Yeah. Um, unless Harrison or, or Shane have something to add, I'd need to know before the show. Yeah, I, I'd I'd say I'm I'm ashamed to say that I haven't been following the the Earth right. changes. Well, it's, well, I have, but it's but it has been very quiet. There, obviously, I mean, for us, so many of the things that happen are, have become common. Uh, that I mean, there have been a few meteorites over the past uh, seen in the skies over the past since the last time we were on on the show. Uh, but we're not even going to report on them because they happen all the time, and it's it's not notable almost at this point. Um, or it's not notable. Um, we're noticing it, but you know, we report on it on on sat.net. But uh, I don't think there's any point in talking about any particular ones. But there have been more meteorites. Um, we're we're in a kind of a lull between we're coming out of winter, and I think there is a kind of transition period between. Uh, kind of winter and moving into into spring, but uh, uh, apparently there's going to be a lot of storms coming up now in the next uh, few days, in the next week or so in the US, a lot of storms. Apparently March is going to be ushered in with some pretty major storms uh, across the US, so that's something to to keep an eye on. But 
you know, crazy weather and wild weather is just it's par for the course at this point. And I think even many people out there have actually become uh, have normalized it to a large extent. Uh, they think it's the new normal. So for us to kind of say, you know, this is crazy, is people say, no, but this has been happening for years. Well, yeah, it has been happening for years, but before that, it didn't happen. So it is a shift, you know. There's, there's one event this week that stands out. Um, there was an outbreak of tornadoes in Virginia. Right, in the south, yeah. Two days ago. And it's the earliest ever known tornadoes to hit Virginia mm-hmm. this time of the year. Yeah. Completely putting to rest the idea that there's a distinct tornado season, mm. even for the U.S. South. It just happens all year round now. Mm-hmm. That's normal. Yeah, that's bizarre. I mean, it usually happens uh, in the fall. The, that's like the tornado. It's it's like season. a. I think it's but, like a. It's like a band. It moves across. It starts earliest, say March, April, in the warmer South, and then migrates northwards as far as Iowa, Illinois, Michigan. Mm. But uh, I think there were tornadoes in Michigan last month. So you see, it just cycles all year round now. It doesn't matter what time of the year it is. Um, any other strange... Well, in terms of flooding, you, you can't get um, much worse. In fact, you cannot get any worse flooding than the Mississippi Basin got in January. It's not supposed to flood at all in winter. In some areas, it beats, beat their worst ever flooding for summer months when it typically happens, say, May, April, May. I mean, these are, there are things happening that are extraordinary in the sense that there's no, there's no paradigm to explain them. Yeah. And this is, where, this is why we call them earth changes. This is why they stand out as being noticeable to us. Mm. Um. Whereas for many people, they simply expand the existing explanations mm-hmm. to incorporate them. Mm-hmm. And they feel justified in doing so because it's not that day-to-day, it's not that much of a change. Because their, their, their mind is only so big, their attention span is only so large. They mm. don't have a fuller range of what is possible and what is not. Mm. Well, um, nobody's listening to us. No. No. Because uh, we're, we're, we're boring now, you're boring. We're boring, you know. You're boring us now. So, because well, we kind of say that because um, you know there isn't a lot to say right now about our changes. But because everybody in the chat room is talking about water right now, they're talking about what they've done with their water because uh, of the recent uh, session from a few weeks few weeks back where we talked about the properties of water and the usual properties of water, and people have been experimenting with water, um, drinking it and bathing in it. <laughs> For the first time, no, no, they've, they've been they've been you know using their intent to uh, um, to change the water uh, or to, to to imbue it with certain properties and seeing what effects they have. So we have we have a thread on the forum about about it. Um, but I wonder if um, yeah, maybe the floods are an effect of that. Cause that's a lot of water coming down at once, and maybe there's some kind of uh, connection between the know the uh, collective consciousness of certain people and groups of groups of the, and in parts of the world uh, and and the effect they have on water they're calling down the <clears throat> unconsciously they're calling down floods on themselves you know and uh, it's possible you know but we'll have to experiment more uh, as we have been doing with water and uh, and see where it takes us 
But, uh, yeah, well, I think we've run out of uh, topics for this week, folks. We hope you um, enjoyed our discussion on Dabrowski and all of that. And uh, we did. I learned some things. Um, but we, yeah, we're going to call it a night at this point. Uh, thank you to Harrison and Shane and to Bahar, of course, for being on and sharing your knowledge and wisdom and everything else with us. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Okay, and <clears throat> again, thanks to our callers and to our chatters who, yeah, chat's been very active. Um, everybody seems to be having fun. I think it's because they can all see each other's faces. Because they've all got their avatars, they know who it is now. Most of them have their real some people names. Have some hmm? Funny looking faces. Well, yeah, there's some that aren't faces there. <laughs> uh, but uh, they've all got their names on there, which is a lot better than Blow Talk Radio. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it's anyway. a cool platform that's put together. Yeah, it's excellent. It, it seems to be uh, appealing to the peoples. So, uh, yeah, we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with another show. Until then, uh, Have a good evening, or day, or morning, or night, wherever you are. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye-bye. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.